We are on the final week of our series in Colossians, and uh, so we're turning to Colossians chapter 4 and verses 7 to 18. And in these last few verses, Paul closes off the letter, and this part of the text for us when we're reading it can be easy to skim over, can't it? Because it seems like, you know, Paul's done his main teaching here, I've got all the nuggets of information I'm going to get out of Colossians, he's just talking to some of his friends here, I can just sort of move along. It's kind of that that part on the flight, you know, anybody fly fairly often a couple of times, and after you've flown a couple of times, right, they start that safety demonstration, and you're flipping through the Sky Mall looking for a foot massager or something because you need one of those all of a sudden and uh, you're not really paying attention. And this part of the text can be kind of like that or, or it's like the end of a movie, right? The movie's over, the, the credits start to roll and everybody's heading for the door because there's nothing left. But now the new Marvel Cinematic Universe has taught us you've got to wait till the end of the credits, right? Everybody knows now you don't head for the door when the credits are rolling on a Marvel movie because you're going to miss something really important at the end. And this text can be a little bit like that, that you're sort of just sort of skimming to get to the end and sort of heading for the door before Colossians is really done. Or, or maybe in another way that some of you could relate, it's kind of like if you're a mystery fan and you're reading mystery books or you're watching those mystery shows, and at the very end of the show, you're sort of trying to figure out what it is, that, you know, what the plot is, and you find out at the very end that, of course, it was the guy in the first ten minutes that only had two lines of dialogue that the whole thing hinges on, Right? Or that character that showed up in the third chapter and you never saw again, you realize, you know, they did it. They're the, they're the ones that it all hinges on. And, and these last few verses are a bit like that as well. Because Paul returns to who we thought were minor players in the larger plot of the New Testament. And we discover in these last few verses that these people that we thought were minor players, that we only hear names of and maybe a sentence here or a sentence there are actually key and indispensable to the ministry of Paul and to the early church. And so today, don't give up on these last few verses. There is a sermon here for every one of those verses. But uh, as I said at the start of the series, we're going to go through Colossians way too quickly. And so I'm going to look at all these verses together, all at the end, uh, and consider just one or two of the many things that they could teach us. But But my encouragement to you as we look at these verses is to look for yourself in some of these people, because that's the main takeaway here uh, this morning of many other things we could cover, is that the people Paul uses and that are indispensable to the ministry of Paul are people like you and I. So let's open up the text and ask God to bless the reading of his word this morning. This is the word of God. Colossians 4, 7-18 Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. And I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you. They will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. And Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice. These are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear witness... I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, worked hard for you and 
or sorry, Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read at the church of the Laodiceans, and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. So what we have here in the last few verses of Colossians is Paul is writing from a prison in Rome, remember, is a portrait. It's sort of a group photo. It's, a, it's kind of a selfie of Paul with his ragtag team of missionaries and pastors, writers, a doctor, fellow prisoners. And honestly, meaning no disrespect to any of these amazing saints, I could not help but be reminded in these final verses of this photo that I saw a couple months ago on the internet. And when I saw this, it came with this caption, I don't know what gang this is, but I so want to be a part of it. (laughs) Now when you look at these guys, you think they can handle anything. They have the skills, they have the teamwork, they have these unlikely (laughs) bonds of friendship that you can tell just by looking at them, make them a force to be reckoned with. And I'm pretty sure Paul is the rooster at the front there and uh, the ringleader of the whole thing. And, and that's what I see in these verses. This is Paul's group photo. This is his selfie from prison. That's a picture of Paul's satisfaction with and his care for these incredible friends that have stuck with him and made this extraordinary ministry of his possible. And this is the coolest gang of strange characters From Paul and Onesimus down to Luke and Epaphras, all of them, they are a misfit bunch that anyone would want to be a part of. And hopefully, we will shortly see we are a part of this gang, that God has put us together to make it possible for us to be the same kind of team that Paul had. So let's start with this this team that Paul has assembled here. Let's start with Tychicus. And uh, Tychicus... He says, we'll tell you all about my activities. He's a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. He was Mr. Steady. He was Mr. Faithful. I don't know. Maybe he was the bull in that picture. I'm not sure. But the Apostle Paul could entrust anything to Tychicus. And we first meet him in Acts chapter 20. Paul is wrapping up his third missionary journey. And he has a plan as he seeks to head back to Jerusalem that he is going to take a love offering for one thing. And he also wants not just to bring money back to support the church in Jerusalem, but he wants to bring some Greek Christians with him. And you have to understand that you know, before Paul's journeys out into the Gentile world, the Christian church was largely Jewish. It was the opposite of what we would think of it today, that Jesus came to Jerusalem and to the Jews first and to the rest of Samaria and the ends of the earth later. And so, uh, you know, Greek Christians and Gentile Christians were kind of a novelty. And so Paul wants to bring some Gentile Christians back to Jerusalem and share with them in the fellowship with the Jewish Christians. And in Acts chapter 20 and verse 4, you see the names of these Gentiles who agree to follow Paul, uh, and Tychicus is one of them. And... Uh, You think, well, what's significant about that? Well, as you remember, on his way back to Jerusalem, in every city that Paul visited on his way back, he was warned about the horrible things that were going to happen to him if he goes back to Jerusalem. And so these people that are traveling with him are hearing all these prophecies of Paul, of all the stuff that's going to happen when he goes back, and 
they don't turn away. Tychicus sticks with them. He's still with them in Jerusalem. And they stick through Paul through all those warnings and then through the trials that actually come in Jerusalem and Paul's imprisonment and everything else. Tychicus was there with Paul through that and he's still with Paul now here in prison in Rome. Many months, more than a year later. This guy's faithful. He's, he's seen it all. right? And so Paul says, this is a beloved brother and a faithful ministry and he can tell you all about what we have been doing because he was there. He was there for prison. He was there for the shipwreck. He was there for all the stuff I went through before I got to Rome. And if you look ahead in the life of Paul and Tychicus, when Paul is in his second imprisonment, we read at the, in uh, Titus in chapter 3, verse 12, he says, When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. And so Titus was the pastor of the churches on the island of Crete, but Paul wants to see Titus again. And so he sends Tychicus to go and fill in as an interim pastor in, in Crete. And so Tychicus is Mr. Dependable Guy. He's there with Paul, and, and Paul entrusts him with the, the pastorship and the eldership of, of Crete. And then he does it again. Paul wants to see Timothy one last time, and so he writes to Timothy. In the second letter of Timothy, in chapter 4, he says, Gather up Mark and Luke and come to me, because I have sent you Tychicus to Ephesus. And that was Timothy's church. And so Tychicus is the interim pastor there while, while Timothy is away. So this guy is Mr. Dependable. But those things are still to come. And, and here in the book of Colossians, Tychicus is this trustworthy friend of Paul's. And Paul has him carrying the letters that has to go to the churches. So Tychicus is the one that's carrying this letter to the Colossians. And not only is he carrying that letter... We will also see that he's carrying the letter to the Ephesians. We see in Ephesians 6.21, the same time frame, the same phrasing that he uses for Tychicus being sent to them to tell them what was going on and to encourage them, and that he's accompanying that letter to the Ephesians as well, or to the church in Ephesus. And then, as we will see shortly, he's also carrying a third letter. He's carrying the letter Philemon as well. And so Paul trusts this guy. He trusts him with his communications. He trusts him with the church in Crete. He trusts him with the church in Ephesus. Tychicus is this faithful, trustworthy, sticks with Paul through Jerusalem, the travel to Rome, the shipwreck, the imprisonment. He fills in. He carries these letters of the New Testament. And Paul needed guys like Tychicus, or he had no ministry when he was imprisoned. The takeaway here from this little understanding of who this guy was is that there's no letters getting delivered. We don't have Colossians. We don't have Ephesians. We don't have Philemon if there aren't guys like Tychicus in Paul's ministry. He needed guys like this. There's no counsel coming to people like Philemon when Paul is stuck in prison. There's no interim ministers. You know, you get to the credits rolling stage uh, of the letter and you wonder who these guys are. These are the guys that are making it happen. We look at the New Testament and Paul might be the lead actor. He might be the star. He might get all the screen time. But this movie does not get made without guys like Tychicus. It doesn't happen. And so these bit players are important in Paul's ministry. He needs, and all ministries need, these faithful, steadfast people who are there through thick and thin and who are doing the little things that make ministry happen. And so do not think that any of us, any of you, that the part that you play is somehow too minor to be meaningful in the story that God is telling and in the work that he is doing in the world. Because it is the Tychicuses of the ministry where the rubber meets the road that things are getting done. But the ministry of the, of the kingdom doesn't go forward without faithful people in the background getting that important work done in a faithful way. And that's a lot of us here today. And then we consider Onesimus. 
He says, and with him, Winnesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you. Now remember who Winnesimus is in this sort of team that Paul has. He's the runaway slave. This guy is a thief. He's a man with a sinful past. Tychicus we can sort of understand, and he should get some credit, right? He's this Gentile Christian, and he's faithful. He went with Paul to Jerusalem. He stuck with him. He's done his work. You never hear a bad word about Tychicus. And so you expect him to be sort of part of Paul's group. But Winesimus? Like one of the letters that Tychicus is carrying is a letter to the whole church, Colossians. And another letter he is carrying is a letter to one family in that church, the letter to Philemon. And so Paul sends Onesimus, who's a runaway slave, back to his master. And Paul is saying, I want you to remember, he has become my son in the faith. Literally, literally he says in that letter, I have become his father. Verse 10 in Philemon. What a story of God's work in this man's life. Onesimus apparently was a part of a Christian household. He was a debt servant of some sort, working off. Paul talks about the debt that is owed to Philemon, and so he's working that off somehow in his household. And so he was exposed to the Christian testimony of Philemon and his family. Maybe he attended this church or was brought to this church, but instead of coming to faith, he had run away with his pockets full of more of Philemon's stuff basically stole from the family and ran away. And he runs away. He gets to Rome, which is a city of almost 2 million people. And he's a runaway slave thinking, I'm going to get lost in this city of Rome. 2 million people. They're never going to find me. And somehow, well, not somehow, God providentially brings him across the path of Paul and his workers in prison in Rome. And Paul leads Winesimus to Christ. And so he thinks he's running away and he's running straight into the greatest evangelist of his age, clearly, not working out the way he planned. And so, by God's providence, he ends up in the circle of Paul and his friends, and he gets wrapped into this gang, this runaway slave, this thief, this guy who is trying to abandon all of the mistakes of his past and just run away from them. He gets caught by God and gets drawn into Paul's circle, and he has to go back and face his past and to reconcile with Philemon and to get healing and forgive and be forgiven and reconciliation. And so Paul sends him back and he tells Philemon, whatever Onesimus owes him, consider it Paul's debt now and be reconciled because this is your brother in Christ. And so this is the transforming power of Jesus at work and all of these different relationships bear witness to it. There's a further illustration here of this, this transforming power of Jesus at work, which is uh, the, the gospel working in this way. And the fact of the Jews and the Gentiles even working together the way they do with Paul. If you look down a little further in the text, Paul says of the group, these, the three men that he just mentioned, are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God. And that's another illustration of how the gospel transforms the lives at the very root and it crosses barriers of social class and racial differences. Because here's Gentiles and Jews working together. And they are from all different walks of life and all different races and all different backgrounds. And so the gospel of God here is crossing old animosities of cultures and wars and race. Gentiles and Jews embracing each other as fellow workers and brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. In Galatians 3.28, Paul hits on this again. He says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, bond nor free, male nor female. You are one in Christ. And so in this chapter of Colossians, he wrote to them to put on the new self or their new identity that they have in Christ. And so we see this in that ragtag gang of Paul's. We see these people from different backgrounds with a past that they're ashamed of, coming from a sinful background or being Gentile or Jew or, um, you know, being... Greek or being Roman or being whatever they are. 
And they all come and work together. And this is who we are. When we look at this little band, when the credits are rolling here at the end of Colossians, and we see the types of people that Paul has embraced in his community and in his ministry, it's the same way we are. That it doesn't matter who we are or where we came from or what our past is, God is using you in his ministry, even men like Onesimus. And so don't fear that because you have some sort of dark past that you're ashamed of, that God cannot capture you and use you for ministry and make you a central figure in the things that he is doing in his kingdom in the world. Let's look at another person here in Paul's band. John Mark, or Mark as he's called here, says, And Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him. Now notice the special instructions here that Paul mentions. Right? And the extra encouragement to welcome Mark. Why does Paul need to say that? John Mark, he's his full name, but he's usually just called Mark, I think probably to avoid confusion with another famous John in the Bible. Um, so they call him Mark. He was one of the most prominent men in the New Testament church, this guy Mark. Right? This is Mark who was there with Jesus. He was closely connected to the life of the apostles. He's the writer of a fairly significant biblical book, the Gospel of Mark. So why does Paul send special instructions to this church in Colossians saying, you know, I've told you all about Mark, right? And if he gets there, make sure you welcome him. Why would he have to say that? Well, because this is the same Mark of Acts chapter 13. Ten or twelve years before, this Mark had deserted the Apostle Paul. He had deserted the ministry and the mission set before him. He had disappointed Paul. He was the sole cause of the argument and the rift that Luke tells us about between Paul and his missionary partner Barnabas. In chapter 15 of Acts, as Barnabas and Paul were setting out again on a missionary journey, Barnabas says, hey, let's take Mark along. But Paul says, forget it. This is the guy that quit on us. This is the guy that bailed out. So it caused this split between Barnabas and Paul. And Barnabas took Mark, who we here learn is his cousin, which is probably why he was sticking up for him, right? He's family. Got to stick by family. So Barnabas takes Mark and he goes one way and Paul took Silas and and went another way. This is the Mark that quit. This is the Mark that failed. But now you see just this little, we think of it as a footnote or a credit rolling at the end of Colossians. We see what has happened. Mark has come back to his commitment to do anything and go anywhere for the gospel of Jesus. And now Paul and Mark, who seriously mistrusted each other, Paul at least mistrusted Mark, are now brought back together in companionship and mutual respect. And so Paul is leaving this instruction, look, Mark's useful to me. He says later on in 2 Timothy, and Paul says when, when he's talking to Timothy, he says, get Mark and bring him with you, Timothy, because he's very useful to me in ministry. And so this relationship has been restored, that Mark is now committed again to the mission. And that Paul and Mark have reconciled. And Paul sees Mark as being worthy. And now he's sending this footnote. And he's sending special instructions ahead of Mark to Colossians to say, look, this guy's all right. You may have heard that he bailed out, but he is back on the team. He's back in the gang. He's okay. Make sure you welcome him. Don't believe those rumors about him being a quitter. Because he's okay by me. And so Paul gives him this mark of endorsement. And these examples that I give, they cover a lot of us, don't they? Whether we have run away from God or we have run away from our past, we are running ashamed of the things that we did, and yet we are here today because God intersected our path at some point, as Graham prayed. We're here because God got in front of us, and he cut us off, and he stopped us from whichever way we were running, and he brought us back into his kingdom and back into his ministry. 
And he ran us into the path of some of his people who got a hold of us and got a ho- and we got the news of Jesus Christ. And here we are back again in the family, forgiven and reconciled and restored or in the process of that happening. We're not here by accident, but because God has cut us off in our running away and brought us back. And we are people from all different walks of life, and it doesn't matter our heritage. We could be First Nation, we could be Irish immigrant, we could be Dutch, black, white, Hispanic, Asian, you know, or you could be properly Scottish in your heritage. That's fine too. You know, that's a good head start. But, you know, it doesn't really matter what your background is. That God brings Jews and Gentiles together. It doesn't matter your family name. It doesn't matter where you came from. The selfie that we have here of Paul in this prison cell with all his friends around him are from all walks of life. The goat's there. The sheep's there. The llama's there. The bull's there. You know, it doesn't matter. God has brought us all together from all walks of life. That is the family of God. That is the kingdom we're a part of. Or perhaps even more personally, like Mark, we have not just failed in life outside of our faith in God, like Onesimus, a runaway slave or a thief or something like that. We've even failed in ministry, like Mark. In the inexperience of our youth or out of fear or from arrogance or weakness, we have totally blown it inside the church with other Christians. We have let people down, right? And we've maybe wounded people, hurt people that we never wanted to ever fail or hurt. But you and I are here today because of the transforming power of Jesus Christ says, you've got another chance. Just like Mark had another chance. Even though he turned away in fear at one point in his ministry, he was reconciled and brought back in, and he had another chance to minister alongside Paul again. If there is anywhere in the world where grace abounds in excess of failure, it's in the family and in the church of Jesus Christ. If there's anywhere in the world where you get more chances, it's here, because this is where the grace of God falls. So failing in ministry is not a life sentence. You know, just because you blew it three or four years ago does not mean you're going to blow it forever or you can't ever minister again. Just because you've hurt someone or, or caused a rift in the family of God somewhere or with a dear brother or sister, it doesn't mean it can't be reconciled. We have this footnote on Mark right here, this sentence on Mark from the Apostle Paul to tell us that it can be reconciled, that you can be profitable again in ministry even as you dare to hope so. We know that you, everyone here has second and third and fourth chances because of the grace of God. So how do these people who are so different from each other love one another from the heart like this? And the answer is because of the incomparable Christ who transforms every single life he touches and is glorious to see. That's what Colossians was all about. Right? The book of Colossians was all about Paul holding up the transcendent, cosmically glorious Christ and how that transcendent, glorious Jesus Christ could touch our lives and transform us so that we could put on a new identity. And these people that he lists at the end of this chapter, one after another, are just a testimony and an example to that lesson that he was teaching all through the book of Colossians. Christ transforms every single life he touches and it's glorious. And of course, we also have Luke. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you. And so we have painted for us through his letters, that is Luke's letters uh, that he writes, the book of Acts, and uh, through Paul's letters, a pretty interesting picture of Paul's health, right? 
Paul undertook three missionary journeys, and he survived shipwrecks, and he survived beatings and imprisonment. And so we know that Paul is strong. Paul, as a man, is tough. There's no doubt about it. But we see evidence of headaches and perhaps poor eyesight. And of course, he writes of himself, of the thorn in his flesh, that God did not heal in order to keep him humble. And on much of his journeys, Paul had Luke with him. Luke was part of his gang. Luke was there. That's why Luke could write in such a detailed way the book of Acts, which was all the journeys of Paul and the apostles. And Paul needed Luke probably just to keep his body going from one beating to another. We read in 2 Corinthians 11, 25-28, no matter how strong a guy you are, no matter how healthy you are, you go through what Paul goes through, you need a doctor. It says in 2 Corinthians, three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea, on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Now, if you had a doctor traveling with you, wouldn't you call him beloved? Yeah, this is Luke, my beloved physician, who basically just keeps patching me up as I go from beating to beating in the name of Christ. And so Paul needs Luke on the team. We need the caretakers in our little ministry band here at Lakeside. It takes all kinds. We need the faithful tenderers of mercy that are encouraging and counseling and binding and healing, not just physically wounds. And thank God that we don't face the physical oppression that that much of the church faces throughout history and around the world. This is an anomaly, folks, in the history of the church, historically and globally. The fact that we can do this and not get beat up for it is a weird anomaly that's only lasted a little while and may not last a lot longer. And that's why we need the caretakers. That's why we need the people that tend to the wounds, not just physical, but the, the, the emotional wounds and the counseling that's required to bring binding and bring healing and bringing health to those that are suffering, the very real stress and trial of life and ministry. We need those people in our gang. And who knows what Paul would not have been able to accomplish without Luke at his side. Paul might have been dead on his first missionary journey. He might have died of exposure at sea or or hypothermia some cold night on a mountain. Who knows? Or bled out after a beating. But Luke was there to care for him. And because Luke was there and the caretakers were there, Paul could keep pressing on in his work for the glory of God. And so in our little band of ministry, we need all kinds. We need those caretakers too. And then there's Epaphras. Epaphras, who is one of you, A servant of God, Christ Jesus greets you, always struggling on behalf in his prayers that you may stand fully mature and fully assured in the will of God. Early in the letter, we read that it was Epaphras who planted this church in Colossae. He was of the city. Paul says he's one of you. And there's lots we could talk about Epaphras in that regard, but we don't have time for it today. But notice that Paul highlights here, he says, he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Hierapolis, which are nearby cities. And that is almost the exact same phrasing that Paul uses of himself in Colossians chapter 2 when he talks about his own desire for his own heart for his ministry towards Colossians. He says that he wants 
to have the same heart or the same struggle in ministry for the Colossians and the Laodiceans. And it makes me wonder in this band of ministers, who is teaching who? Is Paul the one who is always doing the teaching and always doing the mentoring and always doing the discipling to all these people that follow him? Or in this case, as Paul is writing about Epaphras, as Epaphras is with Paul during the time that he's writing this in prison in Rome, is this a case where Paul is expressing to this man's home church, I want to see in my own ministry what I have seen God produce in your Epaphras. His heart for you. His struggle for you. I, Paul, I want that. Proverbs 27:17 says, Iron sharpens iron, and so does a man sharpen the countenance of his friend. So I think in this ragtag band of ministers and missionaries, they're mentoring each other. Each is a witness to the gifts that God has given them, and each is sharpening the other in their Christian ministry. Paul may have been a great apologist, a great evangelist, but here we see that he has respected and emulated the pastoral and prayer ministry of Epaphras because he sees how he struggles in prayer. Nobody is above learning from another and respecting the gifts of others. And that's what we do in our little ministry band. We sharpen each other and we learn from each other and we struggle together. And that's what this afternoon is partly about, that we will come and learn from each other in this ministry of prayer. And i got to hurry here because there's just so much in these credits that are rolling. But what about Demas, right? We can't avoid the fact that the name Demas appears here as well. And this is not sadness here in this letter. Demas is still with Paul. He's hanging in there with the gang. But eventually the trial of ministry and the lure of the world pulls Demas away. And so even though he's mentioned here in sort of a happy way, we can't avoid the final word on him in 2 Timothy 4.10. Paul says for Demas in love with his present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. So Demas was not someone who lived on the margins of the church, notice. Demas was a guy who was right there in the band in prison with Paul. Demas had close discipleship and teaching from the Apostle Paul, and yet he deserted. And and maybe this is me speculating now, and I'll just put forth that this is just me sort of thinking and reading into the text here. This is not what it actually says. But it's notable that he mentions of Demas... In all of his mentions of Demas, he never has a specific ministry or a specific encouragement of what Demas means to him from Paul. He talks about Epaphras in his prayer, and he talks about Mark, and he talks about Luke's brother, and, and, uh, and he talks, he's going to say in verse 17 of, of Archippus, he says, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord, and, and all these different people around Paul all seem to have a role to play, but, but Demas just seems to be a little bit on the margin, and maybe I'm thinking that Demas didn't do what Paul encouraged of Archippus. See that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. We have received a ministry. You sitting out there right now, you have received a ministry in the Lord. See that you fulfill that ministry. Or you may find that you are drawn away by the pleasures of the world the way Demas was. Because he was not faithful to follow through on the gift and the ministry that God had given him. I don't know, that's just me speculating. But I can tell you that if you start drifting away from chasing hard after God and the gifts that he has given you and what he's called you to do in this church and what he's called you to do in your family and in this community to follow your ministry, if you start drifting away from that and suddenly sports look good or water skiing looks good or retirement looks good or watching movies or reading books, there's lots of things in the world that can pull you away from the kingdom of God. And so we have this little mention of Demas, and it's a warning to us because we know his end in 2 Timothy. 
And I pray that just like Mark, maybe he came back, but we don't, we don't get that in Scripture. Maybe just like Mark, he comes back from Thessalonica and he joins Paul again, I hope so. But we don't know. And then there's Aristarchus and, and Jesus called Justice, and I can't do them all because there's just so much in here. There's like six sermons just in the credits. But anyway, we'll get through it here. He'll be my last one. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. He was a companion with Paul at Ephesus for three years. And you remember what happened at Ephesus. A a riot broke out over Paul and his teaching. And there's this huge riot. And and the whole town is in an uproar. And and they seize Paul's companions. And who were those companions? If you go back and read about it, it's Aristarchus, Aristarchus and Gaius. And they made them prisoners. And so this guy knows what it's like to be a prisoner with Paul. And then Paul goes to Jerusalem and Aristarchus is there with him. And Paul is imprisoned again and he's moved to a prison in Caesarea on the coast. So he's in prison with him in Jerusalem. Then he's with him in Caesarea. And then in Acts 27, they put him on a boat to Rome. And who is with him? It says Aristarchus is with him. And it, very probably Aristarchus has been with Paul through this whole imprisonment all the time, all the way from Ephesus to Jerusalem to Caesarea and now to Rome. And he calls him my fellow spear captive, my fellow prisoner of war is what he calls them. And the thing that binds this group together, that binds Christians together, is not that we happen to just like each other. It's not that we happen to belong to the same social class. We don't. Or the same race, or are part of the same family. We're not. What binds us together, and what binds this band of ministers together that were so successful in the kingdom of God, was the fact that we have been through the same spiritual battles and warfare together. This is what Christian... Fellowship means. This is what the New Testament means by fellowship. Fellowship does not mean potluck suppers and good coffee. Fellowship in the New Testament means Christians working together side by side on mission for the kingdom of God. That's fellowship. And that's what you have here. You have fellow prisoners of war. That's what binds Christians together. Not social convenience or being likable, but struggling in the work of the gospel to reach a needy world. And discovering that we are inadequate without each other. That we are inadequate on our own. And then, and only then, when we realize we need each other and each other's gifts, to be bound together like these guys were, that's when we experience true Christian fellowship. And that's really the picture Paul has given us here at the end of Colossians. If we go back to that photo of the the sort of ragtag gang. I don't know who these guys are, but man, I want to join. It takes all kinds of people. It does not just take one super personality, but it takes a whole band. It takes a whole gang. It takes a family of people that are brought together from diverse backgrounds and working together to accomplish the purposes of God in the world. And these are the kinds of friends. Onesimus, Mark, Epaphras, Luke. These guys are the kinds of friends that we need to be. Are we becoming like friends to one another like they were? Are these the kinds of friends that we are to Jesus and to His body and His brothers, His family, His sisters? Jesus says in Mark 10.29, He says, You will never lose anything, homes, land, family, but that I will replace it 100-fold in this world and in the world to come eternal life. These last few verses of Colossians chapter 4 are Paul's testimony of that promise. Paul says, I have abandoned everything. I have 
given up everything in order to follow Christ. He was disowned. He's... But this promise that Jesus gave, everything that Paul gave up was replaced a hundredfold in this ragtag band of ministers that he had. Prisoners of war, runaway slaves, guys that bailed out in ministry. But they formed his ministry team. This text is the exclamation point on this promise of Jesus. Paul in his letters mentions over 50 people. There were countless ministers alongside Paul and thousands more believers in the churches that he planted. If you think you are losing anything to live the Christian life, that you have to abandon anything in order to run the race of the Christian life fully, afraid that you're going to end up worse off in friendships or support or whatever, this text stands as the argument against any such thinking. Paul is full to overflowing with deep, profound, true friends in his ministry. And the ministry of the gospel and the kingdom of God would not go forward without guys like this. And I didn't even get to Nympha and other people in the text and all the other stuff that's going on. So look at these names today. Look at these people. Mark, Onesimus, Tychicus, Epaphras. Is that who you are to your brothers and sisters in Christ? These are the people that we need to do ministry. Not just the big, flashy, frontline guys, but everybody's part of that gang to do ministry of the gospel together and to love one another to the end. Let's pray. Father God, Thank you for this series on Colossians. Thank you for this letter. Wow, it's full to overflowing. Four chapters. Paul is writing as briefly and as succinctly as he can. And yet, because of your Holy Spirit and the word and wisdom that is there, we could spend months and months just on these four chapters. But Lord, I thank you today, especially for this kind of credits rolling at the end. Easy to tune out. But man, we would miss so much if we did not dig deep into what your Holy Spirit has there for each one of us. Whether we're a Mark or a Luke or a Onesimus or we're a Tychicus or we're an Epaphras or whoever we are here today, Lord. You have shown us, you have peeled back the layer and opened our eyes and I pray you would open the spiritual eyes of our heart that we would see there is a place for us to minister, that we must minister together. It's your plan for the kingdom of God here on earth that we would all have a role to play and we would pursue the ministry that you've given us and pursue it together. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.